Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So Ireland started mank and finished strong. Wales are written off, but end up distraught 30 seconds from a grand slam. England go from bad to good to awful. And Scotland remain like stubbornly Scotlandy. So, I mean, it says something about the Six Nations that the least inconsistent side is France. So where do we start in this special Irish examiner review of the championship? Well, like any respectable host, we performed the briefest of introductions before I retired to the kitchen. Welcome to Simon Lewis, to Donald Lenehan, to Peter Jackson and to Ronan O'Gara. And if any of those rugby aficionados needs further introduction, well, you might just be listening to the wrong podcast. So before we start getting into detail about the whys and why nots, what I would ask first, gentlemen, and Donald, I'll actually start with you. We don't know who's going to win the championship. But which nation do you think has made best use of this eccentric Six Nations? Well, I think it has to be Wales, Tony. When you look at it, uh, only seven or eight weeks ago, they were favourites to be uh, maybe fighting out the wooden spoon with Italy. Um, uh, You know, there's obviously well-documented areas of luck they had along the way. But when you look at the way they performed uh, vis-a-vis where they were in the Autumn Nations Cup, uh, they went from strength to strength and, and ended up within 30 seconds of a Grand Slam and, as we sit here, could still win the championship. So, given the low point that they came in from, they've won a triple crown as well. Let's let's put that on the record. So, um, uh, Wayne Pivak, who you know did such a brilliant job with uh, the Scarlets, he was under massive pressure coming into this campaign. And um, you have to say, Wales delivered. Um and albeit for, for, for you know, that uh, a crazy last 10 minutes for them would be grandstand champions as we sit here. And where, what, from what point, Raj, did Wales come from? Because you and I have been chatting over the weeks and you've scolded me heavily for saying they were lucky. I must admit, I thought they have had a lot of, shall we say, fortuitous moments or whatever, key moments in games. But do you rate them at the moment, you know, the best of the sides, the ones that have taken the most out of it? Oh, there's a lot in that, Tony. I think uh, last night they were very, very good. And it's amazing how it just got away from them. That yellow card, you could see the change. And it's crazy to think it's 30 points to 20, 76 minutes on the clock. And you can manage to lose the game. Uh, but if there's one side that you don't want to give momentum to, it's France. And uh, they took their try well in the end. But yeah, Wales, obviously, uh, you could see that they were loan confidence at the outset and they needed a red card from Ireland and a probably a lukewarm performance from uh, from Ireland 
to to get them over the line that they did momentum from day one. Then uh, I think uh, Scotland uh, schooled them for 50 minutes and managed to get one of their players sent off and they refused to take a kick of goal to go, I think, was it um, 10 points up and they wanted to go maybe 15 points up and on, on little margins like that game swing. And um, um, they found a way to get back in. They're, they're incredibly um, tenacious and... Um, I think they would have been deserving winners of a Grand Slam, but it just shows you how bloody difficult it is to get over the line and uh, you have to feel for them this morning. But I think they're the team with, uh, because you know that they know how to perform at World Cups, I think they'll be uh, quietly confident where they are. Peter? Well, the Six Nations always makes fools of us all and you'd think at my age that I would have known better. But as Donald referred to it earlier on, I was probably one of those who thought, well, the height of Welsh ambition for this championship will be to beat Italy and avoid finishing bottom because they were, well, to say they were dreadful uh, in that sort of equally dreadful Nations Cup would have been an understatement. A little bit of luck against Ireland, um, but they made the most of it. And I thought that they improved with each round. When you look at it, Wales scored 20 tries in this championship. I know they were given a helping hand by Pascal Gozer against England, but 20 tries, twice as many as they got under Warren Gatland when they won in 2019. I think under Pivac, it's not essentially Gatland's team. He's not been afraid to make bold changes. At Murrayfield, early in the second half, he changed both halfbacks, Rodan Hardy and Sheedy, who are a test match novices and turned the game around. He had young Rhys Zamet, who has got electrifying pace, which, as everybody knows, uh, is priceless. So it's not entirely as if he's taken Gatlin's team. He's, he's moulded his own, and I think he's made Wales a more watchable team. And I think if there's glory in losing, they covered themselves in it last night because, you know, to have gone that close and lost it in the way they did to the best team in the championship. I mean, let's, let's make no bones about it. They may not win it, but France are by some distance on the best team. Right. Simon, what do you reckon? Yeah, I, I'd agree with everything that's been said about Wales. I just, uh, talking about the French is perhaps just as interesting in terms of, you know, this is a very young side. They, they made a name for themselves in 2020 and and this time around they had a setback against England of course but they they had what it takes to win games in a lot of different ways I thought the way they beat Ireland was very different um, to what we were expecting certainly how they beat them in in Paris in in, in October and the way they bounced back last night you know Wales should have won that game by all accounts but the but the, the fact that they stuck at it and they kept going they had a red card themselves and they kept going at it and they, they stopped to the way they liked playing and it was a fantastic score at the end. Um, you know, I think hats off to them as well and I think that they pr- perhaps laid down just as much as a marker with this championship than um, the, 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 the Wales have. Yeah. And Raj, what happened to so? I mean, how confidently can you predict the, that uh, France will get the job done next Friday night? Everything points to them getting it done, but in this championship, I think there could be another twist. Like, how do you how do you read Scotland or where are Scotland at in terms of 
comprehensively defeating England. And we've seen, obviously, that there's uh, two sides of this England team are present in the fact that it's they conceded um, a huge amount of points to Wales and they conceded a lot of points yesterday. Um, they've lost games where they've looked even... Um, disinterested is too strong a word because how could you say they're disinterested? But uh, you expect the base level of performance from England in a test game. And it was for me, it was missing yesterday against Wales. It was missing for a long number of, of minutes. And um, I think, uh, well, it'll probably lead into another point, but what is, has to be established at this stage is that there has to be a playoff between uh, the, for me, the the tier B nations to get into the six nations with a playoff with Italy are the lowest, the lowest team because it's just, it's gone too far now. I think it's just... Um, it's too difficult um, to, to keep accommodating Italy season after season when, for me, they are not progressing in any in any regard. And to touch on Peter's point, I think actually, contrary to uh, what we may think, I, I think it was a game last night for leaving bigger on the pitch. I think the Wales management have been very, very brave in a lot of their calls, especially bringing on Sheedy to play ball. But in a lot of the games, they were behind and they needed to play with a width. But last night, it seemed... The, the minute um, Bigger went off, I think it was a game made for him and it was kind of conditions were a little bit more, more controlled when you had the lead. I, th- I feel that he's a very, very good guy for bringing the team or getting the team over the line. So that was something I just wanted to throw out to the lads as well. Donald, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, sometimes a lot of these substitutions these days seem to be preordained. I mean, you get to 45 minutes or 50 minutes and it's like we make this change. Whereas when this whole substitution business started, obviously from us, from a GA background, we were well used to substitutions. It took uh, the rugby fraternity a long time to get to understand how best to use your bench. And Raj will remember going back to maybe even Declan Kidney's time with Munster in Ireland. There was a lot of criticism that he might have had six fellas on the bench, but maybe only two came on over the course of the 80 minutes. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think, look, you've got to judge what's happening in front of your eyes and see how things are progressing. Um, I think in terms of France, fascinating game last night. Um, I had it on kind of delay because I was lucky enough to be in the Aviva Stadium by the time I got home to sit down and watch that game. was was brilliant. And I think uh, in the longer term, the manner of France's win last night, I think, will be huge for them. Everybody knows they're on this project. They're working towards the World Cup. They sort of swept swept out the room after the World Cup and brought in a whole host of incredible young fellas. I mean, every week they seem to pull a, a six-foot-seven second row from somewhere. Every, a different player, a different name that we haven't heard of before. And each one is as good as the previous fella. So I think for France, to, to come from 10 points down... To have Willemse sent off, you know, at that period of the game, and yet to eke out a win against all the odds, I, I think in terms of their journey, toward, everybody accepts, look, that they're a young side. They, they overachieved last year, uh, in some respects overachieved again this year, and could end up winning the championship. But in the context of their longer-term goal, which is obviously the World Cup, I think regardless of what happens next weekend or next Friday night, the manner of their win last night, I think, is going to stand to them hugely. Like, I don't think you'd have seen too many French teams of the past decade 
win that game last night. Before it just disappears or kind of uh, withers, Roger's point about the bottom place team, which let's face it, invariably you're talking about Italy. Um, you know, Peter, uh, how legitimate a point? I mean, I've seen the debate, you've seen the debate many years at this stage, and I've seen the pros and the cons, and people say that the top of tier two is still well below the bottom of tier one. I mean, uh, you know, do you think Italy are living on borrowed time? Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, my heart bleeds for Italy because we all desperately want them to succeed. But it's a bit like a boxer getting in the ring and he's going to be pummeled and he's going to be counted out in next to no time. And, you know, what really sort of uh, annoys me is when you get opposing players like Liam Williams of Wales, like Hamish Watson of Scotland saying, oh, this is going to be a really tough game. Come on, fellas, tell us the truth, you know. Don't insult our intelligence, such as it is. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think Italy have now got to the stage where Italy accept that their position, their place in the six can no longer be taken for granted. And I, and I think they would be reasonably confident. You would give them, I think, in a fair world, you'd give them home advantage against Georgia. We assume it's going to be Georgia, the outstanding team. If they can't beat Georgia with home advantage, then they don't deserve to stay in the championship. If they do, then they carry on. My concern on the wider issue would be that rugby, say, unlike soccer, we don't have scores of alternatives. There are still so few teams or countries who can come into the Six Nations and be competitive or less uncompetitive than Italy are at the moment. I mean, do you agree, Rog? Yeah, exactly. You've summed it up really well there. That's the you know, I don't, don't, I don't think we're looking to punish Italy far from it, but I think just to keep the uh, Georgians, the Portugals, Spanish, Germany teams alive or with some kind of a carrot, there has to be that incentive that uh, you can, you know what I mean, get a double header and, and fill stadia in their country for a game that would mean so much to, to them. Like the yeah, I don't think I, I don't think it changes the dynamic, though, that, that, that the, whoever comes in is going to be the fifth team that's going to get beaten out the gate every week. That's, I think that's the underlying problem for the championship. Um, yeah, yeah, but maybe, yeah. Simon, then if, if you've got a dirty day in February, cold and a driving rain, maybe at least you could see uh, Georgia playing a 12-man line-up malls, just giving something different. But, like, it's 2015 that Italy last won a game in the Six Nations, isn't it? So, like, something has to change or else it's going to be like all the coaches are basically going to be watching where do we get Italy because I think if you get Italy known wrong one it's like you have your kind of what 15 against 15 in training that gets you to a certain level and then perfect opposition in round one to give you a proper hit out where you can nearly organise the constraints of what you're facing and that's not being disrespectful to Italy where you get a, you get massive kind of momentum and potential confidence in your um in your setup before you take on the big dogs. The problem, Tony, sorry, is they can't have a free run forever. I mean, you go back to the domestic game. We've had Benetton and Zebra, who were obviously part of the Pro 14 for a long time. Uh, Benetton, to be fair, were competitive in Pro 14, only going back two years ago. I'm not quite sure what has happened in the last two years. Is it Was it, Simon, a quarterfinal of Pro 14 where they, they should have beaten Munster in Thoman Park? That's, was, only, yeah. that's only, is that two seasons ago? So... Like And I know they're under pressure during the Six Nations in terms of they give a lot of people to the, the 
to the national squad. But tis a, a Munster under 20 stroke academy team played against Bennett on the other night and got the four try bonus with ease. Um, so, I mean, I, I, for the life of me, I can't understand how these Italian players can go into work every Monday morning, whether they're with Zebra, Italy, Benetton, and they've played a game where they've, they've been on a thumping of 30 or 40 points. I mean, psychologically, Rod, you're a coach. I mean, how, how do you deal with that every single week? It's, it's impossible. No, it is. I, I, I constantly uh, I, I, I think about it a lot because... Um, uh, a number of years ago, uh, there was a potential um, potential interest in maybe joining a Six Nations team to get international coaching experience. But thankfully, I, 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 I stayed away from it because I think from people that know me, I'm ratty after one defeat. If it pushes two, <laughs> it's like, but I, I, it's not funny. I don't, I actually do not know how um, you can get a mindset that can, you can handle that you know, I think um, the the resilience for someone like, you know I mean, Mike Cat has spent, what, three or four years coaching Italy, and now he's obviously in the hot seat with Ireland with the, as, an, as an attack coach. But um, at the start, his confidence must have been low on the fact that you're, you're, you're every week, you're, you're, you're not with your own really high standards, but you, you're... you're you're coming back into a room after a defeat, and yes, it's all performance. But at the as there comes a time when you need you need results to feel good about yourself. Let me ask let me ask a dopey question. Uh, I'm CVC, and I've injected all this big money into the Six Nations, into rugby. Uh, we want the best bang for our buck. I hear all the time about the globalization of the rugby calendar, that the fact that there's no boundaries anymore. Why, Peter? aren't the Six Nations looking over the wall, looking at a Japan, looking at someone like that to come into the tent. Look at what this, that we have this great competition. I mean, people talk about calendars and all that kind of stuff, but is that something like that is that people are actively looking at or is it just a non-starter? No, it's not a non-starter at all, Tony. I would have thought that CBC are looking at anything and everything. I mean, they have invested millions, Pro 14, English uh, Premiership, and now the Six Nations. And they haven't done that because they like the shape of the ball. They've done it to make money. They made a fortune out of Formula One. Uh, and people who know something about more about Formula One than I do say Bernie Eccleston is one of the smartest cookies in the game. But they came in, revolutionized Formula One, made a fortune while they were at it, and then backed away. So clearly they must have a master plan. You think, well, what could the master plan be? I think you have to be careful if you're going to change the structure of the Six Nations. It's such a greatly loved tournament that if you, say for argument's sake, split it into conferences and you deprive England of an annual game against Scotland or Wales of an, Ireland, an annual game against Ireland, then you've immediately caused uproar and dissension. So they've got to be very careful about what they do. But the one certainty is that the landscape of the game globally will be changed in a way that none of us probably can foresee at the moment. I mean, there's, there will be global playoffs, all kinds of things. There will be, there will be the top, there'll be a club World Cup, possibly. It, it, it's all going to change, Tony, because as you well know, money talks. But like, explain to me just one of you, why, why, why wouldn't Japan be an, off, uh, sorry, an option? Because I think then it doesn't become, 
I for for Antoine it would be or sorry Don would be a lot more um, wise and experienced. I give my point of view on this. I because there's so much history, as Peter has said about the the six nations. The option for me is that it becomes a five nations again, and you get rid of Italy to to free up a, a potential weekend. I think that is the only option. Why? Yeah, with all the money coming in, but why lose all the history involved in this five or six nations? By it isn't five or six nations if you add Japan. As Peter said, there would be different, I think, strands of, of competitions or bylines. But like you would be very unwise, in my opinion, to think or would he, it either for me has to be a five nations or a six nations because then it's the exact same as the Boucle in France, it's the same as the Premiership, it, even with. 20 odd years or 25 years you can see how powerful the, the uh, European Cup is already and, and that's hundreds of years behind the domestic competitions but uh, that's why would it, you know what I mean if you're adding a competition with Japan or with South Africa it, it can't be anywhere associated with the, with the five or six nations because I think people have a deep love for that competition Yeah I think that's a very important point um and uh, like go back to, to, to Peter's suggestion, like talking about two conferences and you don't have that annual fixture. I mean, you're just tearing the soul out of the Six Nations if you did that. Um, South Africa, you see, the issue is here. CVC, they've actually invested 818 million euro in those domestic leagues and in the Six Nations today. They're not stopping there. They're currently in negotiations with South Africa. They're looking to buy 20% of their commercial revenues because we know South Africa or certainly four of their teams are coming into the Pro 16. Like technically we're going to have this Rainbow Cup if it goes ahead in the next couple of weeks. Their longer term goal, therefore, from their club perspective is to get the likes of the Bulls and the Sharks into the Heineken Champions Cup. Uh, for me, I, I think that might be a great addition. That is a comparatively new tournament and no issue with that expanding. But I'm 100% with Raj in terms of keep the Six Nations to Europe. Uh, if it's going to be that, that Georgia or Italy, so be it. But then you go to Simon's point about, like, Tizona, you have a new whipping boy. I would be far happier going back to a five-team tournament or a five-country tournament than sort of uh, this falsehood of South Africa coming in. Or there was a suggestion that Argentina... Argentina are a problem now for world rugby because, again, they're kind of out there, okay? They're still involved in the rugby championship in the Southern Hemisphere, but they're, they're, their so-called domestic team, Jaguares, are gone, they're, and all their players are now scattered all over the world again. So that is an issue for world rugby to address. But talk there was talk of Argentina being based in Spain and that they might be part of the Six Nations. Again, that is just a falsehood in itself as well. So look... Somebody has to grasp this, but the issue is here. Um, as, as Peter has rightly said, uh, CBC have invested this money for a reason. Now, the suggestion is the return that they will get from their investment will be probably based on the, the advancement of the November series because the November series is now part of the overall package and you kind of this Autumn Nations Cup where you will have South Africa, New Zealand and Australia involved. So therefore, the additional money that you'll make out of that is that's where the major scope for improvement is. And if that's the case, then so be it. I have no issue whatsoever with that, except maybe in a World Cup year. Um, but 
keep Europe, or sorry, keep the six nations for the European-based teams, or at worst, go back to five teams. Simon, uh, I saw Eddie Jones's interview. Uh, I didn't see the BBC version. I saw the Virgin Media uh, interview after yesterday's game, and I'm pretty sure I heard him right when he's saying that they finished the championship. They were in a better place at the end of the championship than they were at the start of the championship. Now, courtesy of Donald's uh, article for tomorrow, I see that that's the first time in 45 years that they've lost to Wales, Scotland and Ireland in the same championship. So is he taking the piss? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, coaches, as, as Roger will attest, see things slightly differently to the rest of us. Um, look, they, they compare them to 2018, for instance, when Ireland won the, won the slam and they finished fifth. And Eddie Jones rebuilt the team um, that had got him so far after the 2015 World Cup. Um, and, and, you know, and they turned into a team that could hammer the All Blacks at a World Cup semi-final. Yeah. Um, they couldn't back it up. Um, but he's now in a different position where they won the championship in 2020. And these are young players now and they've, they haven't gelled at all. It seems to me they had a great performance against France and, you know, everyone was saying their mojo was back. This was the team that could, that was, you know, playing at a level on par of that side that beat the All Blacks. But, but now, as you say, having lost to those, to the, to the you know, their, their triple crown competitors, all of them in, in, a, in a sweep, um, what does Eddie Jones do now? He's, does he kick out these young younger players and start again with another group, even younger perhaps. He's, they're at a real crossroads, I think. And that, that was a defining moment for them in Dublin yesterday that they couldn't, they couldn't back up a, a win over France in the, you know, in the same way that they, they didn't manage to do it against New Zealand into the World Cup final against the Springboks. So um, I wouldn't say that they, they are in a better place um, than they were at the start of this tournament. They may be in a slightly better place than when they got beaten by Scotland in round one, but I, I don't think um, they've come up with too many solutions to, to, to the problems that they have at the moment. Peter? You would almost hope that somebody at Twickenham would call him in this week and put a couple of questions to him. One, why did you concede 14 penalties through gross technical indiscipline against Wales, then concede 14 penalties for gross indis technical indiscipline against uh, Ireland this weekend? Why did you react to what happened in Cardiff by saying, ah, great, we've got Matt Carley in uh, and we've got another referee in to talk it, talk it through us? And I'm thinking, well, surely prevention is better than cure. Why didn't he do this before that? Why does he have to wait before a calamity befalls him in terms of losing a game to Wales, which, if you remember, they came back to 24-all. I think most even diehard Welsh fans would think, well, England will win this now. And yet from that moment onward, because they kept giving away penalties, there was never any of the slightest doubt uh, about uh, of, of Wales not winning that game. So, uh, I, you know, and he talks about... Uh, media criticism was rat poison and you think, well, that's baffling enough. And you wonder then at times how the players react to all that. And Donald, you will remember, I mean, I first came across Eddie Jones when he was a bit of an agent provocateur for the Wallabies during that um, 
2001 Lions tour and, you know, he gets up to all kinds of tricks. But post-World Cup, I thought England against New Zealand, I thought that was the finest England performance I've ever seen in that semi-final. And yet since then, you know, they've dropped to what? Fifth best in Europe. It's, uh, it, it's pretty appalling for a country with their resources. My goodness me. I think it's probably reflective, Peter. I mean, you're right in terms like that semi-final performance. I was lucky enough to be in Yokohama against New Zealand. Um, uh, without question, England's best performance of the professional era. But I think what you're seeing here, really, and you look at the, certainly the performance of Ireland and the way they kind of stuck together throughout the Six Nations, I think, as we all know, it was a, a very strange and a totally different Six Nations because of COVID, because of no crowds and because of the restrictions that were placed on groups. And I think, and I know we, we'll go on and we'll be talking about Ireland and Andy Farrell, but I think Andy Farrell deserves massive credit because first and foremost, when you had the, the challenges presented with a group together for seven or eight weeks in this pandemic bio bubble, uh, the way Ireland handled it compared to uh, but just on what you read, let's say, to the way England uh, appeared to handle it. I mean, I, I read a piece by Ellis Genge during the week where it was almost, we can't wait to get home. We can't wait to get to our families. And, and I'm sure every player felt, felt that way. But I think the um, particularly... If, if, if reflected well on Ireland, given that they lost the opening two games of the championship. So therefore, to end up where they did yesterday, um, compared mm. to where they started out the championship, I think um, there were so many off-field issues that contributed to teams' performances throughout this championship. And Eddie Jones, as we all know, he's a sparky individual. He rubs some people up differently to others. Some players like that. Other players don't respond to that. And I'd say... Eight weeks in camp with Eddie Jones, you'll be fairly ready to go home at that stage. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Raj, is he um, is he just tinkering still? Do you think Eddie Jones? I mean, is he looking for consistency, or is he looking for a little kind of a light bulb moment from these games? Where is he as a coach in terms of looking beyond twenty twenty one? Tony, I wouldn't have the experience to answer that, I don't think, because he's hugely experienced as a coach. But I think if you're watching as a neutral or uh, observer yesterday, you'd have uh, you'd be left scratching your head at, at a lot of uh, performances, especially George Ford. I think he's coming into those years where he's becoming hugely experienced now and he's meant to be a leader of the English team. And what you read in the press uh, from fellow players is that he's an on-field coach and he has um, great understanding of the game, but I didn't see it yesterday at any stage. Um, even in the first first 15 minutes where they had a foothold in the game and they were the ones that were setting the tone. and um, he Just his decision-making, I don't know, is he under instruction to kick at all times? I think we're all aware that uh, a big survey of data came out in terms of uh, for the last three years bulk of work that the teams that kicks the ball more essentially wins the game but it's always really in the detail that the point is is made I think it's the team who kicks the uh, the ball more accurately will have success so um, I think England's 
uh, kicking game has um, is nowhere near the required level. I think they have good footballers, but um, you just after 15 minutes y- yesterday, you could see an attack they completely lost their shape. Uh, Lawrence was the was the furthest um, English player in terms of width, and he was probably 10 meters outside the far post with n- with no threatened 15 meter channels. So. Um, you know I me. Mean? You'd love to be a fly on the wall in their meetings and wondering how they uh, went about constructing their week about how they break down Ireland. Because um, you know, I mean, I think Ireland uh, they've got better, but sometimes they're spacing in defence. They're soft in the outer channels, so you can get there. But um, you look at it yesterday, and England were, were very much off the pace attack wise. Sorry, Anna's Peterson in everything. I think they conceded, was it, uh, well, varying reports, and I haven't done a, a penalty check count on it, but I think it could have been 17, which in a Joe Schmidt era, that would be four games for Ireland. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great point. When I, Simon, when I, when I asked you first off uh, to start off about, you know, you know, taking the most and extracting the most for the championship, I mean, yeah, there seems to be a universal agreement uh, on Wales, but I suppose I was thinking of Ireland actually in my head because as Donald says there you know the way they finished the tournament now of course the downside is that potentially they mightn't actually play another game together like for another seven months or eight months but in terms of how they finished and in terms of the, the really bright sparks and the bright elements from an Irish point of view can you kind of take me through your own individual assessments of the plus points for Ireland from the Six Nations? Yeah, I think that there are quite a few actually. Um, it, it, you kind of, from a personnel point of view, I think the introduction of Ryan Baird and Craig Casey is to be applauded. I think he's, um, regardless of CJ Stander's announcement last week, um, he was finding, uh, you know, some new depth in his back row with the likes of Will Connors, uh, Ty Byrne, proving himself as as a blind side and. And, you know, there was some nice balance in Ireland's forward play, um, particularly in the back row um, before the England game. Um, also, the fact that they, you know, it, it does take time. I mean, Rona made the point about Mike Cat coming in from a losing mentality and, and then trying to put a shape on, on Ireland's attack. They kept telling us this was coming, that they were going to play with a more, you know, the, this heads-up rugby that, um, you know, better decision making, um, you know, better on field decision making, and that I'm sure that takes time. And you know, maybe we should have get, been a bit more patient with them all along because you can't just come in and, and tell players who have been used to a quite a regimented and prescriptive game plan under Joe Schmidt to suddenly flip the switch and start thinking for themselves to that degree. Um, in game, so I think there's there's development there. It's been a slow burn, but if if you know if that performance is going to count, it's going to have to be the benchmark and the kind of the, the beginning of the end of the or the end of the beginning of the Andy Farrell era. So you know if you take this as a launch pad for what Ireland can achieve, I think there's a lot of positivity there. Peter, you were writing Saturday about uh, Johnny Sexton and. Given that performance uh, on Saturday and in fairness, he followed it on from the Scotland one. Are we looking at that performance almost 
longingly and wistfully in terms of the 2023 World Cup, i.e., we know deep down that this is lovely to see, but realistically, he's not going to be there two years' time. Hmm, it's still a long way off, isn't it? Uh, I mean, he's coming up, what, he'll be 36 this summer. So if the Lions tour goes ahead right now, I would put my money on Sexton being the Test 10, which would make him the oldest Test standoff. Uh, well, Rog, I think, holds the record. I think, Rog, you, you were, what, just about just 32 <laughs> in... 39. 39. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and I think Johnny would have been what, just 31 on the on, on, on the last year. We'd be 36 this time. Um, you wouldn't, I wouldn't really mark for the World Cup, but it's 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 an awfully big call. I mean, nobody would question his spirit, his men, mental fortitude. It's just a question of whether he can hold the body together in what every season seems to become in physical terms, a more brutal sort of game. On, on, on the wider issue of Ireland, I mean, I, I was, I, I thought it was outstanding yesterday. It was the, the best I'd seen for some time. And I, I was really surprised at the way that they didn't just beat England, they outplayed them. And when the Six Nations, you know, they get round and they put out about five or six players, you know, who's your player of the championship? Well, right now I would have two Irish forwards among that elite group. I think Ian Henderson made a massive difference when he came back from his injury in terms of how how Ireland began and how they finished. I think he's got lions stamped all over him. Um, and, of course, he plays Test Rugby at, at blindside as well. And the other one who's been phenomenal is Tag Byrne. Uh, I, th- I think those fellas would take some beating as uh, even... He even gives Antoine Dupont a serious run for his money as the player of the tournament. But, no... Um, I mean, in, in Lions terms, right now, if you were to pick a game to play the Springboks next month, how many Irish players would you have? I'd probably have six. How many English players would I have? Probably three. Now, at the beginning of the championship, who would have said, you know what? There's every chance there'll be twice as many Irish Test Lions as there will be English. You said, something wrong with that bloke. He needs to be certified. But, you know. That, that, I would have thought, is the reality. And the only thing that concerns me a bit about Ireland is that I feel that the reliance... I've, I'm, I don't think I've known a team that relies more heavily on one player than Ireland do on Sexton. And if anything, it's, it's an even greater dependence than, than Wales have on Alan Wynne-Jones. And heaven knows that's, that's saying something. But I think... He is that important. And I thought his precision bombing against England, I, I, I thought it was just wonderful. You know, everything was absolutely perfect. Now, he's seen them off. I mean, who would you who would you want to play the last in, in, in a Lions test against the Springboks? Would you want Finn Russell? We all love his magical stuff. Or do you want a guy who you know will be there whenever the mucky stuff hits the fan? Well, I know what I, my answer to that would be, but I'm not really interested in my wet total. Um, the one thing I would say, if I may, just in terms of cautioning uh, what the lads have said, is that before the England game, we were singing a very different tune about Ireland. You know, you said it yourself on Saturday. This game today will determine where we were at. After 15 minutes, I'd say you were in the press box looking around at Michael Corkin or whoever and saying, uh-oh, so, like, suddenly now, are we saying that everything is rosy in the garden 
after 65 minutes of rugby. <laughs> no, of course, we're not saying that. But I think, you see, the issue about yesterday or about Saturday's win is there were elements to Ireland's performance throughout the championship that were excellent. I mean, you've got to have the basics in place. The basics start up front. Ireland's scrum has got better and better as the championship um, progressed. Uh, the line-out, and, uh, you know, we've all spoken about Paul O'Connell's input there. Ireland's line was outstanding to the extent where England actually stopped kicking to touch. They kicked long. Uh, they didn't give Ireland that many. I think Ireland had only four line-outs in the opening half of the game. Um, their breakdown work throughout the championship has been outstanding. The, the, the manner in which their ball presentation and the ability to recycle quickly, all those elements were there. You had individual performances throughout the championship, but they didn't seem to be able to knit the whole thing together. There was obviously issues in terms of their attacking game wasn't quite there. Um, I think, uh, you know, probably the number of missed tackles defensively, they weren't actually bad. It's just they missed a number of one-on-one tackles. They had people in the right positions to make the tackles, but they didn't make them. Um, And... Um, so therefore, those elements were there. You did feel it was, you know, someday it will come together. And thankfully, that Saturday happened to be the day. But what made it even more special for me, you spoke about the first 15 minutes and you're absolutely right. I mean, I was in, the, in a commentary box, only 300 people in the Aviva. So you're looking right down. You can hear everything. You see everything. Uh, you go back a week to Ireland's opening 20 minutes in Murrayfield, in my view, was a masterclass in how you start playing and controlling the game away from home. You flip that. The opening 15 minutes on, on Saturday were actually very poor. Uh, I thought, oh, God, we're going to make the same mistakes against England that we made in the four games that we lost. We were carrying direct. We were England had, had, two, defense, had two tacklers in the... Uh, both Tyke Furlong, Tyke Byrne, Ian Henderson, they were all either stopped in their, tra- in their tracks or blown backwards in that opening 10 or 15 minute period. And you felt this was more of the same. But to be fair, once they, they survived that um, assault on the line, you had the Maro Toja being held up over the line, you had the free kick from the subsequent scrum. And then Ireland, I think they sort of, uh, rather than running into guys, they found ways to play out of the tackle. And from that moment, their whole game took off. Now, Robbie Henshaw was was instrumental in terms of the way he lifted everyone around him in that opening 15-minute period. But um, the ingredients were there. And again, you must think of like the first try, Earls's try, brilliant training ground move. Again, the confidence that you get. If you've spent the week doing that because you've identified an issue with their uh, defence, and you executed absolutely per. I think it was Ireland's first line out in the opposition half. So they've been wait- they were waiting for an opportunity to launch this. And you could go through the game and never get the right time to do it. But yeah. the fact that they did it and the fact that it worked, all those things, I think, it just lifted the confidence of everyone around. And the sort of individual things that have been done well all came together. And I've always believed, and I think I said this in advance of the game, this England team, If they get their nose in front, if they get 10 points ahead of you, it's all over. You'll never beat them. But if you force them to chase the game, they're not good at that. Uh, It is a flaw in their makeup. Um, So it's it's, it's a strange one. But uh, I think, look, everything came together for Ireland on the day and it couldn't have happened on a better day. I don't know. I mean, Raj, I don't know. Is it 
the fact that we've performed so poorly at World Cups or whether it's the likes of yourself uh, I've been hammering into my head for quite a long time about, you know, we should be focusing more on World Cup cycles and doing better. So when you see someone like, I mean, I mentioned Sexton, but even when you see someone like Keith Earls yesterday, I don't know what it is as a rugby fan, but you're almost kind of looking and you're seeing him dancing around, you know, uh, was, it, was it Johnny May for that try? And you're saying to yourself, oh God, I wish he was a couple of years younger. You look at Conor Murray and, you know, we seem to almost, or maybe I, maybe it's just me, we seem to be in that place where we're looking at 2023 and all our best performers are on the wrong side of 30. Yeah, and just to finish up on Dawn's point, I think going back to the Nations Cup and up to yesterday, um, it was hard work for Ireland to score tries. I think yesterday we had two half opportunities and we got 14 points, and that is massive at test level. Mm. You know, in fairness, like... Uh, the ball from Conan back inside to Earls, like it's, it's, you know, what I mean, it's like a midfield throw. And then, yeah, it was that good. He's tipped down to him, and then Earls his acceleration away from it. And as you said, to step Johnny May inside out and back out again, and to finish, it's, it's, it's a surreal moment. And that's what you do all the training for, and all these extras after training to do, on footwork to have that opportunity. Obviously, you want the ground packed when you're doing it. But he'll be happy enough. And you could see his his emotion when he did score. And that's a guy who's 33 years of age. Conan's pick and go and decision-making to see that the kind of pillar defender had moved for England and given him half a sniff. And he was able to, you know what I mean, accelerate from seven metres, which is the longest and the hardest yards to get in, in, in Test Rugby and to get his team a try, both converted. Uh, 14 points on a day like that, off half opportunity. We weren't, it's not as if we were knocking on the door up to that at any stage, it was England who were setting the tempo, but that would have given the Irish team a massive lift. In relation to your question, Tony, and, um, yeah, you you know, I think while the mindset of a player having played England a lot of times, it's a very, very special game. And since you're three years of age, it's the one game during the year you want to win. And if you get lucky enough to play in that fixture a number of years, because you have to realise also you only play England at home once every two years. So that would have been um, in a lot of players' diaries, the fact that, you know, I mean, you look at your Champion Cup fixtures, you look at your, you know who you're playing at home in the Six Nations and you know who you're playing at home in the Autumn Internationals. That's how your head works for these big games. Um, but, uh, you know, I think Conor Murray responded very well yesterday. You know I mean? It, it's inaccurate, as we know, to call, talk about, Connor in the same context of Johnny. Johnny will be 36 in the summer. Connor's 32. It's a very workable age. 36, you, you know what I mean? It's it's not. You're 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 a complete outlier in the place when you're meant to be uh when you have such importance also. And and then you have Keith Earls. You can't have a backline like of five players that are, you know what I mean, 30 years of age or over, because it just doesn't work when you're going to a competition and you're probably allowed to have 14 backs in the fact that with injuries, you need to play week in and week out, week in, week in, week in, week in, you know, seven games to win a World Cup. But uh, I think what was great about yesterday, I think uh, probably us as supporters took it as a one-off game. I don't think it has much relevance to what will be happening in a, in a Rugby World Cup cycle because it's still, what, 27 months away. Yeah. So, like, as we know, a week is a long time in sport, but I think 
what it'll happen, it will make Farrell's, I suppose, um, presence standing uh, standards much more effective in getting his message across in a group that maybe mightn't have been sure whether I might to do it the Schmidt way or the Farrell way. But I yeah. think yesterday is the uh, signature performance by, by Farrell. Peter, are you aware of this um, uh, social media interview with uh, Easterby uh, from the captain's run uh, that actually uh, highlighted that exact move that England never copped? Are you aware of this story? No, not at all. You've Okay, Simon, are you aware of it? You are? No? Yeah, well, Simon Easterby did. Uh, the IRFU don't put a coach up for press conference anymore on the, at the captain's run any more than they put the captain up for that matter. But... Um, so that they filmed their own interviews and someone from the, the Irish press officer filmed a pitch side interview with Simon Easterby as the lads were doing line out drills and <clears throat> this ball sails behind Easterby's head and it disappears off screen and then in comes Earls on this brilliant angle like <laughs> flying out of nowhere and you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have paid any particular attention to it, only that they repeated it the next day. And uh, someone made the point that if that had happened with uh, Joe Schmidt, that press officer might have been sacked. <laughs> but um, so yeah, it's an interesting, as, an interesting thing to see. Yeah, but as Peter would attest, I mean, as as coaches and managers, we were almost paranoid about uh, cameras and, and training sessions. Certainly, in, in in the start of the professional era and. Uh, Many a times I've been in ground. I remember being, uh, Raj would have been there in, in, in Ballymore. We were on that Lions tour and um, preparing for the game against the Queensland Queensland Reds or whatever they were the following Saturday. And Andy Robinson spotted a, a lone man up on the top of the stand about 40 miles away. And he's over to me. Who's he? As if I'm supposed to know who this fellow up on the stand is. <laughs> and of course, they're all going paranoid. It happened in 2005. They changed the lineout cause the day before the first test. But how ironic that is the RFU's press officer that yeah. leaked the lineout in advance of the of, of the game. So um, yeah. I mean, you know, maybe just, the whole the whole thing has come full circle. I'm just picturing I'm just picturing the English flight home last night and Eddie Jones kind of turning to someone and saying, like, geez, man, that was a really smart move by the Irish and some guys sitting like, oh yeah, I, I actually saw that on Twitter actually last night, that exact, I mean, Raj, as a coach, okay, they got away with it and it worked, but I'd say you're having a word with your press officer after that, are you? I think, not for me, that that's kind of over my head, Tony, it doesn't, like that's, that's negative, narrow-minded, I think, in the fact that, like, they have seen every single bit of match footage that you've played, yeah. that Ireland have played. So, That's like, true. if you're worried about that, it means that your your house is in incredibly good order. What has shocked me is the fact that how how Curry went to defend it. In the fact, like, the golden rule on that is you can go for the ball if you know you can get the ball. While you, you've got to picture this. So, what threat is Conan? So he, uh, Curry has unbelievably taken the bait. He couldn't actually have fished him out of the water any more beautifully for Conan to release the Earls. Normally what happens, the overthrow, Conan is for the first defender, which is Farrell, because Conan is static. You have to, you, you know what I mean? Imagine this, so it's an overthrow. His eyes glued on the ball. He has to backpedal to catch, to go forward, like... He isn't driving a Ferrari, 
this is a guy on two legs. What he's hoping to do is the fact that uh, we're going to tease Curry out of the line and then inside to uh, Earls, who has a mismatch on uh, Macabonapola. But obviously the, the throw was just about it and Curry could have nearly picked it off if he, uh, if he had a little bit of, of a, a bit of a GA background, he would have he could have got it. But like in terms of you talk about fine detail, that's it. Yeah. But you'd be very, very disappointed because like this move has gone back. England started when England actually changed the momentum. Remember that game in um was it in the Aviva when we kind of Ireland played England and everyone showed up and it was like, okay, how many points are Ireland going to win by today? And I think England won by 20. Mm-hmm. Was it 2018? And so England started that game with a kickoff. Uh, Ireland caught it. Um, played one phase. Connie Mur- Connor Murray box kicked it. England had a pre-planned move overthrow to Tuolagi. And he just uh, steamrolled onto the 10-12 onto, uh, channel. We went short side. Mismatch. And Johnny May scores after, was it? Two minutes, what, I think. Yeah, two one minute 40, minutes, was it? Or something like, yeah. you know, so like this move has been around for a long time and an awful lot of teams uh, use it. But I suppose uh, it's summed up, I suppose, for how, how sharp Ireland were and potentially how off the pace mentally England were, which I think is backed up by our point that they conceded between 14 to 17 penalties. Peter, I, I mean, Raj would know this obviously and Don would know this better than, than, than me anyway certainly um in terms of the Leinster and Munster players now I mean you know when you actually when you finish a six nations like that and obviously they're going to be playing each other in the Pro 14 final next weekend but in terms of uh Europe and finishing the European competitions now you know strongly I mean given that you're talking about the bulk of the Irish group that must be that must be a bonus as well, like in terms of for, for Van Gran and Leo Cullen. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I, I thought a couple of seasons ago that, that Leinster were very close to being the best non-test team in world rugby. Uh, I'm thinking about two seasons ago. I mean, it's all a bit, it's all become a bit confusing and, and foggy, hasn't it, since, since the COVID restrictions came into operation. But I thought they were very, very close to that. A team good enough to beat many, many test teams. Uh, and I would expect them to go on. I mean, it's phenomenal, the number. I mean, what did they supply? Was it 11, I think, of the Irish starting team at the start of the championship? And, uh, yeah. I mean, I remember a few years ago when when Warren Gatland picked, was it 13 Ospreys when Wales came from behind to beat England at Twickenham? I think that was his, he and Sean Edwards's is uh, first game. So, yeah, but we could have go back to a, another point, Tony, from the game yesterday, which, which we're particularly interested in, Rog. Um, I, I mean, you know, because I'm a bit of a nerd, I kind of put the watch on, on goal kickers and, and it's, it's, it's a given that Johnny Sexton takes longer with his goal kicks than anybody else. And people will say, well, okay, he's entitled to, well, no, he's got 60 seconds from the minute he signals to go to the post. And it was, most, most referees just leave him be, almost as if, oh, it's untouchable, we can't say anything to Johnny. But Matthew Reynal, I think, towards the end of the game, said to him, as he's lining it up, he said, you've got 40 seconds. And it was almost as if, I don't think Sexton even heard him. Yeah. I mean, he took at least another foot. I mean, so strictly speaking, a referee, if he's going to follow the law to the letter, 
blows up after 60 seconds and said, you've had your time, as happens in France, doesn't it? In the, uh, exactly, yeah. There's the a top. shot clock in France. Yeah, yeah. Which... So, so, I mean, were you ever conscious, I better get a hurry up here, otherwise I'm going to be timed out? Yeah, there would have been, yeah. And um, that's gone back, yeah, uh, a number of years, Peter. I think that's been... Um, pretty well refereed wrong through the years but it was noticeable yesterday I think the, what was probably irritating for the neutral yesterday was the amount of uh, yeah times I suppose uh, brilliant because Johnny would be well aware of what he's doing Ireland are in control of this game if I can milk two minutes out of this penalty job done even better because I'm going to kick it but also the amount of time that um, setting scrums there was so much dead time but like that I think that happens because you have a top 14 ref that is coming into a big game where um, it's a completely different standard and different, better level, obviously, at, at Test Rugby. And, you know, it was further reinforced last night in the red card for Willemsa. Like, those neck rolls and those cleaning out, I reckon one of them happens every 10 minutes in a top 14 game. <laughs> it's just... A goal, is it? Well... <laughs> He got yeah, the red flag yeah. for the gouge, didn't he? Uh, and, and I mean, Do Donald, I'd never heard an international head coach come out publicly and accuse the opposition of specialising, that was his word, in trying to get players a red card. Oh, that. Um, you know, that, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a pretty serious allegation, isn't it? And, 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 and one thing that I do abhor, which has crept into the game of late, is players call, urging referees to to card him and all the rest of it. And and, and and perhaps the more the more decisive ones have said any more than that, and I'll uh, and, and 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 I'll card you. But um, mm. I mean, to to accuse the opposition of specialising in getting players sent off is is unheard of, really. Um, I mean, my mind goes back to that Murrayfield game last month when Xander Ferguson was sent off for uh, 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 an illegal tackle, which was very similar to the Peter Romani one in, 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 in Cardiff. And Ferguson's brother, Matt, you know, was playing at number eight. He, he went on record publicly as criticising Wynne Jones, the Welsh prop, for, I suppose, for want of a better word, milking it. But... But in the end, the, the TMO examines it. And, you know, if you gouge somebody, then you deserve to go, don't you? But it's of an interesting... I read that Galtier comment, Peter, that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, again, OK, it's 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 a new departure for rugby. Uh, I know, Donald, you would strongly disagree with it. Um, and it is coincidental, I'm presuming, that the three centre yeah, look, I mean, is it... came against Wales. Yeah, is he... Exactly. I mean, but you're... I mean, Wales, Wales didn't influence the Peter Romani sending off in any way or the Xander Fagerson. They are the laws as they are. I mean, I'd be saying to the lads, no, lads, you've got to tuck your elbow in. You can't go in with these things with your elbow leading. Um, it's, it's, so, I mean, I, I think it's a ridiculous statement. Even the Willemsa one, to be fair to him, he's cleaning out a fella. His head is in behind the, the Welsh player. I mean, it's... it's um, you know, is he deliberately looking to goad someone? I don't think he is. He has his hand in his face. No, you just have to be careful. But look, these things happen in split seconds. It's like the Bundyaki one. Of course, it is shoulder on head. But he's actually dropping his knees going into that contact, as is Billy Vunapola. So, 
like we we know the reason why all these red cards are there. They're they're trying to manufacture a situation where people are lowering the height of their tackles. But you're talking about sport at the, the highest level where things happen and change in an incident or in, in an instant as you know, the 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 the, the Francis one with Peter O'Mani, his body position changed at the very last second. So you have sympathy with the players who were sent off, but they just they just have to be more careful. I mean, it is. I mean, was it? Uh, there, there was so many yellow cards. I think Italy had three yellow cards. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, was it uh, Wales? Obviously, had a couple in the end. Sure, Ireland ended up down to thirteen men as well. So I mean, it's it's kind of. It's the silly season in terms of cards at the moment. It is, yeah. But can I can I say to you, lads, uh, and Simon, you might say this, and and we'll just head on to the Lions after this, and then we'll wrap it up. But I mean, uh, like, what I look when I look at rugby and how it's refereed at the moment, and like the minute detail and the number of reps we get from TMO, and yet I look at two obvious examples uh, as as someone who isn't obviously as embedded in the sport as you are. And Peter has mentioned one of them. It's the time-wasting with penalties. And the second one, Peter, is the even more blatant time-wasting with the resetting of scrums. I mean, you know, is that not gamesmanship? I mean, is that they seem like things, as you and Raj were saying there in terms of putting the clock on the kicker, can you put a clock on a scrum because, you know, you can literally now at this stage run down the last two and a half, three minutes of a game by re- with reset scrums. Well, I think I think Munster is uh, uh, back in Rogers' day where the, the pass masses. I mean, Munster was so good that they could run a game down from almost about 10 minutes out. Nobody would get the ball. No, no, no. You've and, had a few knocks to the head, Peter. <laughs> and I, did, I didn't, I didn't criticise him for that. I admire me the 2016 final against who you're talking about, was it? 2006, yeah, yeah. No, eight. <laughs> um, but but it, it, it is a problem. I mean, yesterday at Murrayfield, very unusually, there were two, two set scrums in the first half. And the, I, I think they took something like two and a half minutes of time. And you're saying, well, thank goodness there aren't any more scrums. And then you're saying to yourself, well, hang on a minute, the set scrum is... Is the core of the game. Um, yeah. We don't have set scrums. We kind of looking at 15, 15 man a side rugby league. Um, if you, the danger is that if you stop the clock uh, to try and stop time wasting, you're simply lengthening the whole game. I mean, you had that famous game, France Wales in Paris, is it four years ago? When it went to something like 27 minutes of stoppage time, penalty after penalty, after reset yeah. after reset, substitutions, <laughs> tight heads going off, tight heads coming on. Oh, he's definitely not in a fit state, ref. You know, don't worry about it. Um, so you simply lengthen the whole game, don't you? Yeah. The, the but Peter, there's, there's, there's a reason for this in the scrum. The bottom line now, you look at the way the scrum is set up today. You have the front row. They bind and it starts off with the hooker. He puts his feet in the ground, puts his arms up. The two props come in and they take a couple of seconds to get themselves set properly. The second row is buying, they're on their knees on the ground. The two wing forwards get in. Then the number eight goes down. There's a sequence that takes way too long. Mm-hmm. Um, it was never like that. I no. put this down to the fact that if I'm, a, if I'm the scrum coach, and that's my sole responsibility, and I, on average, a scrum coach might only get 25 or 30 minutes over the course of his week's training. You've got to make this thing sound like rocket science. So therefore, 
Do you know what I mean? Your input has to be absolutely massive. It's ridiculous how long it takes to set a scrum. And then if you have to reset it, you go through the whole process again where everybody goes back to basics. And um, so uh, it, it's, look, the scrum is an integral part of the game. And as, as Des Fitzgerald said to me one time long ago, the scrum only matters when you don't have one. In other words, when the opposition sense a weakness in you and they'll chase you and they'll make it count. Um, and there is less scrums now than there ever was, but they, I, I think they certainly have to do something with the time that's involved in the whole setup. Um, and, and, and as I say, I think it's a product of the individual coaching that's gone into that area. Okay, yeah. Okay, don't even start me on box kicking. But uh, <laughs> Simon, like, let's live in a parallel universe for like 30 seconds and pretend that there's no COVID and we're all looking forward and everyone has booked flights for South Africa in the summer and we're all looking forward to a great Lions tour. I mean, in terms of the Irish, and Peter mentioned there, like Peter obviously has his Lions first test team picked. He's after picking six Irish in it. I was coming up in the car today and I heard Ty Byrne described as a bolter. Like I must admit, I would have thought Ty Byrne at this stage was, was, was a lock-in at this stage. But in terms of one's who put their hand up or like Warren Gatland, I think has spent some time with the Irish group in the last week. So in terms of what he has seen that might change his mind or might actually lock him into a particular Irish player, who are the ones that we're chatting about? Well, I think if he, if he didn't have Henshaw on his radar um, before the last couple of games, then Robbie Henshaw is certainly Possibly he. I, I'm not saying he wasn't on the on the plane, but maybe uh, you know as a as a starting test player, mm-hmm. um, he's he's shone above and beyond everyone else that I've seen. Uh, Henry Slade possibly as an outside centre um, before he got injured. Um, you know, Tyg Burn. Burns definitely on on the, this fictional plane of yours. I, I would say Tyg Furlong's done enough since he's come back from injury. Ian Henderson, as Peter pointed out before, um, and, and James Ryan. Um, now, do you, if you're talking about a bolter, do you look at someone like Will Connors? Um, has 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 he? Can he re- replicate that kind of chop tackling, um, high intensity performance against a, a Springboks team? Um, that's something Gatlin has to work out. I certainly think he's he's been exemplary in the way he's, he's taken to test rugby so far. I'm not so sure about the, the, the back line other than Robbie Henshaw. Hugo Keenan was magnificent in the air on uh, on Saturday. Um, again, is, has he done enough? Does he have enough in his in his armoury to, to, you know, kind of get onto a test side? I'm not sure when there's Liam Williams in front of him. Um, so, yeah, th- there's a few there definitely that will have had their prospects enhanced by uh, a couple of games in front of Warren Gatlin live and, and you know, Gatland also coming into training this week. Uh, Raj, if I could just say, I mean, if there was a Six Nations team, your, your full-back, in fairness to him, um, has had a fantastic tournament, uh, Bryce Doolan. But if you were picking a Lions test team tomorrow morning or you had some time to think about it and you were picking one, uh, is Liam Williams or the Scottish lad Hogg your full-back? Oof. Good question. Two of them have some incredibly strong uh, points to their game. 
Uh, I like really, really like Liam Williams. I think in New Zealand, you saw what he was. Um, he has X factor. He has solidity. He's. A, I think he's. A lot of players like playing with him. I think he creates a great vibe in the team. Um, yeah, Hogg is in the form of his life. I think he's playing very well. Uh, I just think Liam Williams has an advantage in the last line of defence over over Hogg. Hogg is a better counter attacker, but I'd say it's it's a, a position of huge strength. I would think whoever whoever gets that nod, I I probably would lean towards Liam Williams. And, and Peter, on that team of yours, is is it an Irish half back line, or who, who do you have at nine and ten? Well, I thought one of the most uh, significant uh, aspects of the final weekend was the return of Connor Murray, uh, the Connor Murray that we have known and admired. And I don't think I, I think scrum half is one of those positions where there is anything but. An embarrassment of riches for, for Gatland. You know, I think Wales have used as it what four scrum halves this season, and Gareth Davis has had repeated opportunities. He still hasn't been able to nail that down. Thomas Williams started off and then got injured. Kieran Hardy, as a novice, came in, made an impact against uh, England. Reese Webb, uh, a lion last time out, is very much yesterday's man. Ben Youngs with England. Um, Ali Price in pretty ordinary. Um, so yeah, I would have thought I would have thought Gatland is would have been rubbing his hands at, at Murray's performance yesterday. And, and and right now, if you if you were going next week for a Lions Test team, then uh, I'd have Murray and Sexton uh, as my halfbacks, and I'd probably sacrilege as it may sound to English people, probably have Farrell as my backup bench goal kicker. What do you think, Donald? As someone who has an idea about yeah. the Lions' test teams. Well, I think if, if if you're talking about a squad, I think Ireland could have anything between eight and ten in a 35-man squad. If you're talking about contenders test-wise, tight furlong, absolutely cemented his starting test place at, at Tidehead. Um, you're going to have, like, Tyburn at worst, I think, will be in a match day 23. Uh, he'll certainly make a Lions tour, no question about that. Versatility is, is a huge element. Um, I'm kind of tossing in my own head if I was picking a Lions test pack to play against South Africa at the moment. Size is, uh, is imperative. Line-out options are imperative. So you may consider even playing someone like Atoja at six with James Ryan and Alan Wynne-Jones in the second row or playing Ty Byrne at six. Um, so they all come into the equation. Uh, Sexton definitely starts for me in the test backline, as does Robbie Henshaw. And I agree with um, Peter in terms of um, Connor Murray is right back in the mix. A, because of his own form, and B, because nobody else has sort of put their hand up. Um, you know, Wales is quite widely. I like Gareth Davies, I have to say. Uh, and I just wonder, Peter, is it is it down to the fact that Wales have been chopping and changing so much at scrum half, that none of them has taken ownership of that position. Um, I suspect that Warren Gatlin will know those Welsh players and the Welsh scrum halves better than any. So I think he'll have a clear idea in his own mind who he wants to start. And given that you'll definitely have three scrum halves anyway, then you're taking no risk by including Conor Murray as one of those three. Because as we know, things evolve and change so much over the course of Alliance Test Series 
due to injury and form and all that, and having somebody of Connor's experience and quality in the mix and available to you becomes hugely important. Yeah, I'm not even certain. I mean, again, at this moment in time, who knows? You know, even there's no point in even asking you that whether you think there's going to be a Lions tour because it changes from week to week. And, you know, we're in that place where I think, as, as you've all said previously, I mean, if you start tinkering with the tradition of it being a tour in the truest sense of the tour, then I don't know how much you actually take out of the whole thing, Raj. You were talking earlier about the Six Nations and tinkering with the Six Nations. I mean, I don't know whether it goes ahead, but look, we'll wrap it on the Six Nations front. Um, I know you're after a long weekend, all of you. I know you're after a long tournament. It wouldn't be this year's tournament. <laughs> and the fact that it doesn't even finish this weekend, of course, we go to next Friday night. But for the moment, Simon Lewis, Peter Jackson, Donald Lenahan, and Ronan O'Gara, genuinely thrilled to have you. And thanks a million for your input. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah.